President Biden offers some hope to the dreamers, but dashes the dreams of us wanting student loan forgiveness. Ted Cruz flees Texas and heads to Mexico. And I talk with the candidate who is running against Marco Rubio in 2022. Hey, girls and guys, I'm Brandy with an eye, and this is Did You Hear the News? Well, 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 if it isn't the consequence of so many different people's actions. This week has been just uh, absolute shenanigans every day. President Biden continues to do his very best to work in the conditions he was given. He has rolled out a sweeping new immigration bill that would provide immigrants a path to citizenship in just eight years. I think DACA recipients and and children that were brought here um, when they were young, it would be even sooner than that. However, it's not really expected that the whole bill will pass in its entirety. There are already many different pieces of legislation for immigration already that are separate. Like almost everything that he tries to get through in his agenda that he does not use an executive order for, it's most likely going to be an uphill battle because once again, it's just a very sweepingly large bill and it's most likely going to have to be piecemeal. There's probably not going to be any way around it. There's a small margin in the House. There's even smaller margin in the Senate as far as majorities go. And honestly, you would think because this is such a hot topic and there is supposed to be such a concern on both sides for this issue that some agreement would be made. But we'll just have to see what goes on. We know that many politicians will use a issue as a springboard into getting votes and then they will completely do everything they can to block the actual legislation on that issue. So we'll keep our eyes and ears peeled as far as that goes. It seems some of the first Mexican immigrants or migrants have started to trickle into the United States. Unfortunately, it seems that they're dealing with some miscommunications along the border as it pertains to the new laws and who can come over and things of that nature. So it's going to be a fight to get our immigration laws together to kind of work through what all is actually happening at the border right now. We know that we have a wall that was pointless. So yay, USA. Speaking of President Biden, he held a town hall with CNN on Tuesday and it was real cute. It was real cute until the very end when a person asked a question about student loan forgiveness and she basically said, well, we've all said $10,000 is a joke. $50,000 is more of a necessity. And she asked him how he would get that done and he 
flat out told her he would not do that. And if you can imagine, I melted through my couch because Joe, Joe, it's not even like, I don't understand. He gave a, he gave a response, something to the effect of, you know, he doesn't really want the money going to to people who went to Ivy League schools. And Joe, I'm trying to understand, Joe, because I did not go to an Ivy League school. I went to a public university. And if I'm not mistaken, my tuition was about $17,000 a year, if I'm not mistaken. So... If we're going to do maybe, and I might be generous, $17,000 a year times four, that's about $68,000 for my college education. And then I had $38,000 of those dollars in student loans left to pay. And this was from 2007 to 2011. Why do you think $50,000 constitutes a... Ivy League education. I'm so confused. And why do you think that people that went to Ivy Leagues aren't working class? I have questions. And then he wrapped his answer up by saying, because I don't think I have the authority to do it. So this is where my frustration had reached its limits because Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren have been saying since like November or December that President Biden has the authority to pick out one of his pins from his box and sign an executive order for giving $50,000 in student loans for everyone. Now, they have been saying this constantly. For weeks and days, up until the point of this town hall. So what really was throwing me was that it's like, are we not communicating? Like, do the phones not work? Can you not get him on the ringer so you can get a meeting in the Oval Office? I know he's meeting with everyone else. You guys might not be first priority, but can you put some on the books For the people, because listen, I just don't, there's just not a world in which I foresee me actually even being able to live the life that I want and continuing to pay these student loans. I don't see it. I think a lot of us don't see it. I think a lot of us would not want to pay a mortgage payment every month because our student loans are ridiculous. I think. A lot of us would really need help. I'll tell you about how many of us. If you did not know, about 40% of people who have student loans never even got a degree. And millions and millions of black and brown people are the ones who are disproportionately affected by student loans. And here's another thing. I'm really sick of paying them, Joe. I'm really sick of paying them. I just don't even, I don't even know what else to say. So I'm sick of paying money and it not going anywhere. I'm sick. I'm just sick at the fact that I've been paying on these student loans for the better part of 
10 years and have the same amount that I left college with as a balance. I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it, Joe. Liz, Chuck, Ilhan, Ayana, get on the phone because I just, I don't know what y'all need to do, but just tell me what I can do. Tell me what I can do besides tweet every day. Let me know what I can do because they got to go. They got to go. Now, I think after they realized what a hot issue this was, of course, it was asked about at a press conference to the press secretary, Jen Psaki. I'd like to think that I had something to do with that because I was the one who tweeted, somebody please ask Jen Psaki what's up with these student loans. So, of course, someone asked the question and Jen gave a generic answer to the effect of President Biden wants to do 10K. Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer saying he can do 50K. He's interested in maybe doing it with some restrictions. I don't know. The messaging is murky. That's my issue. My issue is the messaging is murky. And if you guys could just get together and clear it up. If If it's a straight no, then so be it. So be it. But it can't be a no because I don't think so when other people are saying, I know it absolutely can be done. I, th- I we, we need to get together on our messaging. Because if it's a no, I don't want to do it, then that's different. That's a that's another reason for me to be on Joe Biden's neck. But I need to know what's what. Because right now I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. But I need to know what's what. Is it no because he doesn't want to? Is it no because he's part of the reason why we can't even get rid of them if we filed bankruptcy? Is it no because he thinks that we don't deserve to have our student loans wiped away, even though America promised us that if we got uh, education, we'd get a good job and we'd be able to pay off these loans, even as they raise the prices of college? I, I, need, I need answers. I just need answers. That's it. I just need answers about that. So, Joe, if you could, if the girls and the guys, if you guys can get together and talk to one another instead of throwing messages across each other on the Twitter sphere. That would just be great. That would be great. We'd appreciate that. Moving on. I don't know if it's the COVID that's getting to them. I don't know what's going on. But this has been a tough week for the elected officials. In a move that surprises no one. Our former president finally said his piece about our Addison Mitchell McConnell. And as you can imagine, it was not nice at all. The official statement that came out, something to the effect of he was dour and sullen and unsmiling like a grim reaper. And there's also reports that he might have said something to the effect of he has more chins than brains. That hasn't necessarily been proven, but that's what I've been hearing uh, different places. So honestly, truly, if you ask me how I feel about this, I think it's hilarious. I don't like either of these guys. It's a hoot and a holler. I got my kikis in because what the heck was that? Number one, you can tell that he didn't really write it, okay? Dower. Does that man know what dower means? He doesn't. He doesn't know what those words mean. But I'm sure he approved it. He didn't write it, but I'm sure he approved it. And I'm not going to put it past him that he did mention the chins and they were like, hold on, Mr. Former President. Like, let's take it down a bit. So obviously, 
there's still some contention among the Republican Party. There still seems to be some back and forth about who really is the influence of the party. Is it going to be the party of the former president? Is it going to be Mitch McConnell's party? Is it going to go down the QAnon conspiracy rabbit hole? Nobody knows for sure, but there is a lot of contention. There still are a lot of elected officials that are still trying to either get in or maintain their good graces. And some of them are doing it in really interesting ways. Nimrata Haley, you might know her as Nikki. This week, she decided she was going to give her two cents on the former president, but it was really confusing because it was a seesaw of emotions from her. I mean, you know, when he first came out as a candidate, she had very strong things to say about him, and then he basically won the nomination and it, she switched up like a lot of them do she switched up and then she basically said hey you know what uh he's not so bad he got his policies through i'm gonna be his u.n ambassador until she wasn't and okay you know do what you gotta do girl but she has been so flip floppy this whole time it's oh don't bother him you guys just need to leave him alone and oh, you know, he just was pretty bad and we shouldn't have followed him. And then it was, oh, but his policies, the policies, they were so great, but he was so terrible. It's like, girl, figure it out, figure it out. And I feel like the former president feels the same way because apparently she attempted to have a meeting with him at Mar-a-Lago. It's like the new mob boss lair like everyone's got to go down to mar-a-lago to kiss the boss's ring i don't know what's going on there but apparently she reached out for a meeting and he was like no thanks smell you later so i don't know what that means for nikki but all the best to her in her endeavors wow governor andrew cuomo like i wanted so much better for him New Yorkers said, I know y'all think that's real cute, him on CNN with his brother, but he's terrible. And I was like, oh no, is he really that bad? And like, maybe he is. I can't be sure. But apparently it came out that Andrew Cuomo's office might not have actually reported the nursing home numbers correctly. It's quite possible that they hid Around 50% of their numbers. 50% is a lot. That's half. So about 50% of the numbers for deaths in nursing homes may have actually been underreported. Now, that came from Attorney General Letitia's office in, in New York. I guess part of the issue is that when people from nursing homes went to hospitals and they died in hospitals, they weren't being counted as dying in nursing homes. But that's still an issue because you also are not counting correctly who has come back into a nursing home that was sick that you say you can't turn right away that may have gotten other sick. But then, oh my gosh, then... One of his staffers came out and said, listen, here's the thing. We weren't trying to lie, but we kind of froze up a little bit. 
because the state was asking for numbers and then the feds were asking for numbers and we were like, who do we give the numbers to? What numbers do we give them? We don't want to give the feds something that they can use against us because, you know, the former president liked to do things like that, which I think that's a testament in itself. But it doesn't excuse the fact that they hid the numbers to make them look favorable for the governor, especially when he wrote a book telling us all how to get through a pandemic. I mean, we hadn't even got through the pandemic yet. He wrote a book, but anyway. So she says that they kind of froze up. They didn't know how they wanted to present the numbers because they knew that it was possible the former president would try to use those numbers against the governor, Governor Cuomo. And I think that's a cop out, but it's unfortunately probably something that was a very valid concern for them, given as how he was also using whether a governor liked him or not to determine whether or not they should actually get resources for their states. We don't talk about that enough, but that is the thing that happened with our former president. So as if that wasn't bad enough, you have a Democratic assemblyman who says, oh, and by the way, this man called and threatened me and said he would ruin me. Is that In politics, is that like the thing to say? Is it like calling somebody a C-U-N-T? Like to say, I'm going to ruin you. Because it seems like that's what you guys like to use a lot. I don't know if anybody ever called me and said they were going to ruin me. I, I don't know if I would like burst out in a fit of rage or laughter. I'm not sure. But this congressman or assemblyman says that the governor threatened to ruin him or destroy him if he did not basically back him up or support him because at this point once we find out from the staffer or the aide that they were basically suppressing numbers you have the democrats who are saying that he needs his emergency privileges revoked you have republicans in new york saying well he needs to be investigated and impeached so There's a lot going on. So maybe he's caving under the pressure. Now, I had heard before, and this is not a gossip podcast. I had heard before that the governor has quite the temper. And it's quite possible that he would cuss somebody out. So I'm not going to say I put it past him to have done that. But I'm not going to say he did because it's all alleged. But yeah, I think it's going to be really tough for him to kind of walk his way out of this one he did kind of try to give an excuse for what happened and basically you know that he did what he was supposed to do based on the federal law and he didn't break any laws and whatever this that and the third and it's a hot mess express honestly of course the story is not going away it's probably going to get even worse as everything else has done so we'll keep an eye on that But lucky for him, a whole nother disaster was going on thousands and thousands of miles down south in the heart, actually the entirety of Texas. Texas was hit with a crazy once in a hundred year winter storm starting on Monday. We saw people 
being snowed in. There was ice everywhere. They're losing their power. I mean, just an absolute terrible disaster. Long story short, there's three grids in the U.S. West Coast, East Coast, Texas. And they have their own grid because they want to keep the federal government out of their electricity so that it's cheaper. And that might sound cool, but what happens if you get a once in a hundred year winter storm where the temperature is in the very low numbers, maybe even negatives in some places, and you have your own power grid that's not connected to anyone else and you can't even try to siphon any power from any other state. Well, what happens is you have a state that is trying to produce energy, more energy than it has, for more of a need than it's ever had. And what happens? Blackouts. Now, here's the confusion about the blackouts. Texas also uses a company called ERCOT. E-R-C-O-T. That's definitely an acronym. Don't ask me what it means right now. Googler is free. And this company was basically in charge of reviewing the energy and making the calls as far as energy goes. Now, apparently ERCOT knew that the storm was coming and looked at what they knew and said, hey, like, we can handle it. Now, apparently what they meant when they could handle it is that, hey, we'll be able to tell you what's going on with it and we might be able to shut some things down to keep you from losing 100% power But that's really all we can guarantee you. We can't guarantee that we're going to make the power stay on, but we can let you know what's happening as it goes off. I guess that's what it was. I watched the interview. The CEO didn't really seem to have an excuse for what we can handle it means. But it appears that ERCOT actually started turning power off once they realized, because My understanding is they were seconds, minutes from losing power in the whole state, which would have been even worse of a disaster than the fact that many people were without power for at least four days. So apparently what ERCOT did is they looked at the places in which they could turn power off to basically restrict power in certain areas so that Places that had like circuits with hospitals and fire departments and things like that could stay online. So they were planned blackouts. I know that you might have seen rolling blackouts or whatnot being used, but no, they were not rolling blackouts. Some people had power the whole time. Some people went without power for hours. Some people, it might have gone on and off, but that was very rare. It's either you had power or you didn't. And then that turned into, well, since we've turned the power off, it's likely we're not going to have water. So at this point, it's either you have water or you don't. All of this is going on, a state in disarray. And what do you think their elected officials, mostly Republicans, did? 
They got on the ground. They got to work. They did what needed to be done for the people. No, no. You know they did. They went on TV and they blamed the Green New Deal and AOC and renewable energy, none of which had really anything to do with what was going on in Texas. Here's why. Most of Texas's energy comes from natural gas and coal. That's not renewable energy. It's not the windmills that might have frozen because they were not weatherproof that only account for about 10% of the energy in Texas anyway. No. Most of their energy comes from natural gas and coal. Okay? And that's where the issues were. So not only was ERCOT turning power off, but there also just was not enough power to go around because of how cold it was. And it wasn't because of the Green New Deal. Do you know why? The Green New Deal is not even a law. At best, it's an idea. <laughs> These people went on outlets like Fox News who were never going to fact check them and said things like this is what happens when you use renewable energy and this is what you'll get when you have a green new deal and it's like what how how can you even say that when you don't have a green new deal you have no new deal you have an old deal from the 1930s that's why you're in the that's why you're in the place you are now everybody got the blame but themselves I had never seen such. I had, but I just, I couldn't believe it again. It continues to happen, but I couldn't believe it. So that was a bad take from the governor. It was also used by some of the other elected officials in the state. And then you had Rick Perry, who was the former governor of Texas, who was the secretary of energy, telling folks that they ought to be happy to go three days without power in freezing temperatures for the sake of keeping their energy private. So it'll be cheap, which is funny now because people are starting to get bills for upwards of $10,000. People's bank accounts are being wiped because they have auto pay on their accounts. They have their card information on their accounts. Take it off. Take it off until you can dispute the bills because why would anybody be paying upwards of $10,000 to not have power for days for your elected officials to act like you should be happy to go without power in the midst of a winter storm? That's not all. A former Texas mayor told the people, that the government owed them nothing and they should stop whining and get over it. People are freezing to death, starving to death, dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they're trying to heat themselves up in dangerous ways like in their car with gas grills or whatnot in their homes. People are dying and the best you can give is get over it. The government owes you nothing. 
he resigned. Now, here's the thing about his story. He claims that he wasn't even the mayor when he said it. He claimed that he had already resigned. Nobody knows how true that is, but apparently they got a hold of his wife's information and she did get fired for the things that he said. So hopefully he was sitting at home in the dark contemplating his actions. But you know who was not? You know who said this is pretty whack? I think we should get on up out of here. Senator Raphael Edward Cruz, also known as Ted Cruz. I couldn't believe when I woke up Thursday morning and I saw people saying, hey, is this Ted Cruz in the airport? Is this Ted Cruz on my flight to Cancun, Mexico? And I gave it some time because you know me, I try not to jump to conclusions. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. I was like, you know what? There's just no way. Ain't no effing way he would do something so stupid, so idiotic. Turns out there is a way. Ted Cruz, along with his family, boarded a flight to Cancun Wednesday night. And when the people found out on Thursday, of course they were upset. Like, of of course they were upset. Ted Cruz realized that he had wet the bed on that one booked a flight back home immediately and as soon as he landed guess what he said he blamed it on his daughters threw them under the bus threw them under the greyhound bus put the bus right on top of them he said my daughter's were out of school for the week and they just wanted to go to Cancun with some friends. So I said I would come with them for the night and then I would come back. So I'm I'm just dropping them off. Really, Tedward? When he got back to the airport to come back to Texas, he had a very noticeably huge bag. Not an overnight bag. You're going somewhere overnight. You can put your things in a backpack. This man had a very decent size roller suitcase. That's his first lie. Then he came back and he said, well, you know, I'm sorry. I was going to stay for the weekend, but it's because my daughters wanted to go out of town. I mean, what's a father to do? What's a father to do when they're at home and their children are cold and they just want to get out to a better place? What's a father to do? I don't know, Ted. Maybe ask all the mothers and fathers with children that are freezing to death what they're to do when they can't get on a plane and fly to Cancun. Ask those people, those migrants that are coming across the border what a father is to do when they're trying to give their child a better life. Why don't you ask them? Well, if that was not enough, he made it to his home where there were people outside chanting for him to resign. And I agree. But then he had a TV crew meet him there. Meet him there. To where he finally told the truth. He also went on Fox News, but he also had a news crew come to his house. And he finally told the the truth that 
it was his plan all along to go and stay the weekend. But you know what? I think he only did that because the text messages came out. Oh, yes. There were text messages from his wife to their friends saying, hey, it's like bad cold down here in Texas. I don't know about y'all, but I'm trying to get up out of here. We can go to the Hilton Resort in Cancun. They got rooms. It's like 84 to our, what, 34? If y'all were in, say less. I'm booking it tonight. You know the worst part? The worst part is that one of the people on the text message thread is the one who sent the text messages to the news outlets. So Ted Cruz lied. He lied. He lied about the trip. He lied about the origins of the trip. Not only that, he had a police escort both times, both ways at the airport. I don't know about you, but if your state's in the middle of an emergency, I think there's something else the police could be doing. I think their time could be better suited. And then what really burned me up, some of you nignogs really sent me over the edge when you were on the internet that Al Gore established asking, well, what is Ted Cruz going to do? He's not an electrician. Why y'all mad at Ted Cruz? He don't need to be here. If I could leave, I'd leave too. Ted Cruz makes over $100,000 annually of taxpayer money And not so that he can go to Cancun when people in his state are literally dying. If Beto O'Rourke can get together a phone bank that actually calls senior citizens and checks on them to make sure they have energy, to make sure they have water, to make sure that if they don't have heat, they know where they can go to a warming center. If they don't have water, they have there's a number that they can call. If they need a checkup call the next day, if they're like Beto O'Rourke's phone bank was the truth. I know because I participated in it from Florida. And y'all are asking what Ted Cruz can do. He should be doing more than me. AOC used her powers for good, raised a million dollars Thursday night. And by yesterday, she went to Texas with Rep. Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas. And they raised $3.2 million for relief for Texas. Someone who doesn't even live in Texas can do that. Rep. Sheila Jackson Lee was giving out food in Houston, on the ground, Doing what needs to be done. Don't ask what Ted Cruz could have did. There was a a plethora of things Ted Cruz could have did. And they weren't going to get done from Cancun. Ted should have been out in the streets. Passing out water. Doing wellness checks. The most that he did was retweet other people saying, Hey, by the way, here's this information. Here's that information. And a few stay safe tweets. This man was tweeting his constituents to stay safe as he was in the airport to get on a plane to go to Cancun, Mexico. And y'all don't see no problem with that, I can't. 
Y'all don't see no problem with that. I got a problem with it. Anyways, as it appears that Heidi and the kids are still in Cancun enjoying themselves, Ted did post a picture of himself Saturday evening, Saturday night, if you will, passing out packs of water, packs of water. So, you know what? Here's the thing. Some of these Republicans are still going to vote for him. Some of these Republicans are still going to vote for him, even though he did not care if they lived or died. And that's what really grinds my gears. Really eats me up. Is that you could see someone not care for you at all. And you just vote for him. This man used Hurricane Harvey, if I'm not mistaken, as a talking point in his ads when he was up for re-election about how he was there for their people and how he was helpful in their time of need. I don't know how he can spend this one come election time. I don't know how he can spend it. I think he's got about four more years. I don't know how he can spend it. I know he will try. I know he will do his best, but I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't see how these Texas Republicans can come back from just being absolute terrors at a time when their constituents are literally dying. I don't know. We've been in a pandemic for a year now, and they already showed us that they've barely cared about that as well. So one day I'm going to cease to be amazed, but today is not the day. Like, I I really couldn't even believe Ted had the unmitigated gall to even do such a thing. Couldn't believe it. Last on this week's list of elected officials who really don't even deserve their jobs, Florida's own Governor DeSantis. I just, y'all pray for us. Governor DeSantis has been basically setting up contracts for the vaccine any which way he's liked this whole time. And recently he set up a contract for some vaccines to go down to Manatee County for only two specific zip codes in Manatee County at what appears to be a well-to-do senior facility, if I'm not mistaken. And That's noticeably confusing, especially when it's the people in black and brown communities who are at a deficit when it comes to getting the vaccine and having access to the vaccine. But we can't expect Ron to care about that. And when he was rightfully called out about it, he pushed back in a very interesting way. Instead of saying, you know what, I know how this may look. I know it may seem that I favor people with money over you brokies. He instead said, hey, I put it there because that's where the senior citizens are. And if y'all don't like it, I can take my vaccines back. And I said, you know what? We are. (laughs) We are under the control of yet another madman. These men are horrid. How dare you get up there with your pumpkin face and tell people 
that probably aren't even getting the vaccine because of the way that you distribute it, that if they're not happy with the vaccine distribution, that you'll take your vaccines back. What you gonna do with them? What you gonna do with them, Ron? You would rather the vaccines go bad and nobody get them. What you gonna do, Ron? See, this is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. Why are you people even in office if you don't want to do the things that people in office have to do? Why every time you do something shady and somebody calls you out about it, not only do you push back, but you get right defensive. Here's the thing. If you're not favoring, if you're not favoring people that are rich, say that. Listen, no, I understand that there are people in impoverished communities that need this vaccine. I'm not favoring one community over the other. This is the reason why I chose it. If people still push back on it, it is what it is. But for you to get upset and testy when people ask you a question and then threaten to use your power to take it back, what? What a, what a deeply disturbing and disgusting thing to do. How terrible. Not only that, recently it's come to my attention that Ron DeSantis is also trying to pass yet another bill that would target Black people as it pertains to voting. Florida's elections weren't even contested this go-round. Why are you trying to make new voter restrictions as it pertains to drop boxes and all those other things? Like The Republicans are really getting together state to state and just trying to figure out the best way that they can stop black and brown people from voting. And it is terrifying. It's scary. It's disgusting. For him to say he wants people to have confidence in their elections when nobody at all said anything about Florida's election, except when they might have been comparing it to 2000 when there was the Bush-Gore thing, but that was a whole nother issue altogether and we shouldn't even be talking about it. But no one was talking about Florida's election in 2020. So what are you trying to reassure the people of that you'll find more ways to suppress black and brown votes because the USPS didn't do a great job of that already last time. What else, Ron? What else? It's just, it's disgusting. And I mentioned to this before for you guys, but please pay attention to the For the People Act. This act is uh, a co-mingling of, I think, the John Lewis Voting Act. And it would also do a lot of things like in gerrymandering. It, it would set independent um, councils or committees up that would actually do the the redistricting and not the elected officials who are going to try to draw the map every which way so that it will favor one party over another. And there are a lot of things in that bill that I think we need to pay attention to because if not, our democracy is just really going to fall to pieces. So I tell you guys all the time, contact your elected officials. Let them know what you care about. Let them know it's not okay 
to try to do even more to disenfranchise black and brown voters because we all know that's what it is, especially in Georgia when they're trying to get rid of early voting on Sundays when they do you know, specific programs on Sundays to get people to the polls. Like, it's super noticeable and we cannot be okay with this. So reach out to your elected officials and let them know that you are not okay with this type of stuff. Because if you don't, if you do not push back on them, if you do not pay attention to what they are doing, they will do everything that they can to stay in power and to screw us over. And that's my action item for this week. Speaking of elections, it thrills me to have Alan Ellison here with me on the podcast this week. Alan is running for election to the U.S. Senate to represent Florida. He declared candidacy for a Democratic primary in 2022. Alan is a Florida native and small business owner. He's also a political scientist and has a not-for-profit NGO dedicated to positively changing and strengthening the lives of families and communities in the state of Florida. He's committed to ensuring all Floridians are heard, and his vision for our future is centered around improving the quality of life for all citizens. This means protecting Social Security, health care, the rights of women, veterans' care, increasing disability benefits, making improvements to infrastructure, and our educational system. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for joining me on Did You Hear the News? I'm really excited to have you today. So for all the people that aren't familiar with you, just start by giving us some information about your background and your platform. Well, first of all, Brandy, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, my background is very diverse. I, uh, I grew up in Hardy County, Florida, uh, which is in the centermost part of Florida. And I um, I went to college at South Florida Community College at the time, uh, which is in Highlands County. Uh, that's where I met my wife. And uh, we've been married now for 19 years. Uh, we both went to uh, Florida Southern College where she uh, did her pre-med and I did pre-law political science. Um, and then we both ended up moving to Washington, D.C., where we both were in school and we both took time out of school when she got pregnant. and so. We came back home and and, uh, started a a life here. Eventually, we went back to D.C., and uh, she finished up her medical degree. uh, And I decided that we needed to come back to Florida once again uh, so that I can start my political science career. And uh, the other thing is I'm running for a statewide seat for the U.S. Senate against Marco Rubio. And so there has been a great deal of excitement uh, and momentum around this campaign. Uh, We have seen our numbers grow on every single level, uh, from financial to uh, social media to volunteers. Uh, We have grown very quickly in a very short time frame. I think since I have announced, uh, we have gotten about 75,000 new Twitter followers. Uh, Our campaign now has about 1,000 volunteers from across the country. So Americans want to retire Marco Rubio. and. and so it's it's just building and it's growing and it's growing on it's growing on every platform. Uh, we put a video out on TikTok the other day and it got 120,000 uh, uh, views. Uh, it was my first time um, <laughs> doing TikTok, but people seem to love it. So we continue to do all that we can to reach as many people as we can and bring responsive leadership uh, to the state of Florida. 
I'm glad you brought that up because that's how I found out about you on Twitter. You came through at a time where I know a lot of us are really just so frustrated by the leadership here in Florida, especially young millennials and Gen Zers. And we're just like, someone save us at this point. So when I saw you on Twitter and you seemed like you were so accessible, it was like a breath of fresh air to me. But when I have the conversation with other folks, it's kind of like, well, do you really think he can beat him? You know, given that Marco is kind of like the establishment Republican, you know, and you're like a, a newer face on the scene to a lot of us who aren't familiar with your background. I'd like to think that if what could happen in 2020 and the Georgia special election can happen, then why not? Well, it has happened literally around the country and throughout history. Uh, what I'm getting ready to do, it, it's been done many times before. Uh, in fact, uh, there are currently uh, 12 United States senators who have beat incumbents and they have had uh, very little or zero political experience. And I think what's happening is it's following the political climate where people are really tired of career politicians because Marco Rubio has been in uh, office now for 11 years. And when you ask most people, uh, can they feel the policies that he has put forward? Most people don't even know what he has done. Uh, and the reality is that he's missed work 60% of the time. And so I don't know if anybody on their job that they can miss that much work and still keep their jobs. So uh, it's, it's just one of those things where as a political scientist and as a, a campaign and a candidate, uh, we have to educate voters to let them understand that really this is a partnership. So there is no way that I by myself uh, am I going to beat Marco Rubio? But collectively, if we all get out and vote, if we all uh, do our part, then this is a very easy task. There are 97,000 more Democrats in the state of Florida than Republicans. But what's happened is, is that most of these uh, leaders in the Democratic Party have really not followed through on the promises that they have made for uh, everyday people especially uh, those Democrats. So what happens is, is Democrats have felt as if people in leadership does not look out for their best interests. And that is disheartening because it makes people not want to be a part of the political process. Part of our campaign is to make people understand that, yes, uh, I am running for the United States Senate. But the reality is, is that it is truly a partnership. I'm running to represent your interests, not my own. And so that means that I have to be accessible. That means that I have to be listening. That means that I have to have a very intimate understanding of what you are dealing with. Because when I do go to the Senate, I need to take all of that information and use my skills and creativity to be able to put together solutions that can address, effectively address those issues. And so if you just think about it, most people are choosing politicians based on that particular politician having enough resource to brainwash the people about what they're going to do and what we have to understand and what we what we are tasked with is educating the voters to vote for the candidate not based on what they say they're going to do but what they've spent a lifetime doing because i believe that a leopard doesn't change his spots whatever a person was doing before they ran for office is probably what they're going to be doing when they're in office if they were hooking and crooking, then they're going to get into office and they're going to 
need a hook crook. If they were out advocating on behalf of people, if they were marching, if they were protesting, if they were trying their best to make improvements to our society, then those are the kind of people that need to be in office. And a lot of times these are everyday people. Uh, these are the things that we have to start looking at, because if we can start looking at those, I believe that educated voters about politicians make better voters. So we're going to do our part to educate the voters, to dispel all of the, the lies, because the Republican Party has done a very good job at branding Democrats. But the Democrats haven't done that great of a job in branding themselves and branding their message. And so I want to make people understand that uh, as a Democrat and a progressive, uh, we are the party that is about improving the quality of life for everyone, not just people that are in our party. And so that alone is a, a stark difference between, between myself and a person like Marco Rubio. And at the end of the day, it's really about who's going to be able to capture the imagination of the people. Because if what I'm saying is resonating with more people than anyone else, then ultimately those people are going to vote based on that level of inspiration. And so um, I tell people when they say, Alan, you don't have the name recognition. I just tell them, listen, just keep watching, because if you see what we're doing, we're building a momentum uh, movement that is based on the people, not myself. That's why I spend so much time. And you've probably seen me spend hours upon hours uh, early into the morning, three, four o'clock in the morning answering as many questions as I can, because I want to create an environment where people understand that this is really a partnership. And in fact, it's called an agency. It's whereby one person represents the interests of another. So if I'm going to represent your interests, I need to know what those issues are and what's near and dear to your heart. Awesome. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do have some questions. I asked around, I asked a few people what they would be looking for if they had the chance to talk to uh, someone who was running against uh, Marco Rubio or running for the state of Florida. And of course, COVID is a big deal. It dominated us for the almost a year at this point. So I know that a lot of people have lost their their way of life, their income. Children are in school, but they're working from home and they may not have the resources to do that. What kind of programs or like, you know, financial assistance do you offer to those families that were most impacted due to COVID? Well, if I were if I were senator today, I would be pushing for uh, the universal basic income primarily because uh, it's something that we definitely need in this COVID environment. I mean, you just said it. There are people right now that are literally out of work. There are people that have no job to go back to because the businesses are gone forever and people have lost people. And so you, when you think about just this for a, se for a second, right now we are facing a recession and the crime rate is going up because people are desperate. And so I believe that if we did have some type of wage subsidy or a universal basic income like the other 33 developed nations around the, around the globe, this would help to get people through this time. Uh, I would propose a $1,500 a month uh, universal basic income to help people through it. But not only that, I would go a little bit further than any other uh, politician has. And I would suggest that we do a, a universal debt freeze, at least for the time being uh, of this pandemic. And I foresee 
that we will be getting beyond this pandemic probably around December. Uh, so if we could have a universal debt freeze, that would allow people to not be so stressed out. That allow people to to breathe a little bit and be able to stay home like we should be able to do. But it's difficult for people to stay home when the bills are continuing to roll in. It actually forces them to go back to work or find some way to get revenue so they don't go under. So if, if we had a, a universal debt freeze and you didn't have to pay your utility bills, you didn't have to pay your rent or your mortgage or your car note and, and all of these things that that people are forced to have to pay every month while we're being told to stay home, it would allow people to be able to stay home. And I believe the COVID uh, numbers would come down significantly. And as far as the revenue that's needed to be able to eat and stuff like that, I think the $1,500 for a year would go a, a very long way. And it would give us the opportunity to um, to try this uh, this program, this universal basic income. Some people know it as UBI. It would give us an opportunity to experiment with this. And uh, it's a shame that we lead the world in terms of our economic uh, strength, but we're not doing the thing that we need to do for our people. So I would push for that. The other thing I would push for is a program that uh, inspires and educates uh, people about entrepreneurship. We need to become more of a, a producer society because right now we're more of a consumer society. We are taught to go to school, get a good education so you can get a good job. And that's great. Jobs are great. But what we need to be teaching our, our young people is to take the knowledge that you've learned in school and start a business because it is small businesses that are the driving force of our economy. And we want to make sure that small business owners, entrepreneurs, people that are very interested in going into that direction have every available tool necessary to them. And so that means that we have to provide the resources. And so there are about two to four billion dollars that go unused every year where that's put into the SBA. But people are having a hard time accessing those funds because of the amount of paperwork. So we want to reduce the amount of paperwork. We want to streamline the process and we want to make sure that people get access to the funds that they need to start those businesses. And we're going to need those businesses to replace all of the businesses that we have lost uh, in this uh, pandemic. The other thing that I was thinking is, and this will probably um, be expounded upon later on in this conversation, but we really need to focus on uh, uh, decriminalizing uh, the use of marijuana and basically legalizing it. Because if you think about the tax revenues that we could generate off of legalization, uh, legalizing marijuana, uh, we could actually pay for a system like UBI or any other program. Um, when Colorado legalized it, the first month that they legalized it, the state did $100 million in tax revenue. And that's just one state. Imagine if we did that in every state. We can help our people significantly. We just have to get out of our own way, think outside of the box, and, uh, and use the, creative, the creativity that we have within us. And that means uh, if it hasn't happened in the last 11 years, and it probably won't happen with the same people. So we have to replace these people and bring people in that have new ideas and new ways of thinking to solve some of the toughest problems that we have uh, in our nation.
I'm glad you mentioned that because that was a question I did have, especially when it comes to all of the black and brown people that are incarcerated due to marijuana charges. But we see that it's becoming very popular. It's like the end thing to do now is to legalize marijuana. And then, you know, all the elites get into the business of marijuana and they're profiting off of it. But we see black and brown people incarcerated for it at disproportionate rate. Absolutely. It's uh, it's so unfortunate uh, because the numbers don't lie. There are 70 percent of Americans that are already uh, using marijuana in some form. Uh, and we have been at this juncture so many times in American history. Uh, at one time, the sale of tea was illegal. At one time, tobacco was illegal. At one time, whiskey was illegal. At one time, the lottery was illegal, but they found ways to legalize it and benefit from it and help a lot of people in the process. And in helping those people, we didn't see so many people that were engaging in those commodities and activities going to prison. And so if we could do the same thing, we would see the crime rate go down. Uh, We would see less of our brothers and sisters uh, being thrown into these uh, cages like animals. Uh, and we could utilize the revenue for it, from it to benefit uh, American citizens and Floridians alike with programs like universal basic income, even programs like universal health care coverage, uh, because these programs, if enacted, they have to get paid for. And a program like legalization of marijuana can very well pay for these programs. And so we just have to uh, be more progressive and and embrace the change because change is inevitable. And if we're just fighting the change for whatever philosophical reason, then we're just wasting time for something that's eventually going to happen anyways. Exactly. And uh, with healthcare being mentioned, we see that, of course, the healthcare need is at an all time high. But once again, Black and brown people are affected disproportionately because they don't have either the access, you know, they don't have insurance because they might not have a job or they don't have access to the health care that some have, especially in rural areas. And especially now we see with the vaccine here in Florida, it seems like there's a system that favors those who are well off over those who are impoverished or at a need. So if you were senator, what would you do to make sure that health care is evenly distributed, not only among those who can afford it, but those who have a need in those communities that are impoverished? Well, I don't have to be a senator to address this issue. Uh, we're actually putting together a petition right now to address this issue, especially Uh, since so many reports that have come out about Governor DeSantis disproportionately sending resources to communities that look like him and communities that are well off. This is actually a a reason why I'm running for office, because I come from those types of communities where people have been disregarded, overlooked, forgotten about. I've come from those communities uh, where people have taken resources and redirected them to uh, communities that really don't even need the the resources, but they do this and they do this across the state. They do this across the nation. So the thing that I would definitely push for is a universal basic health care system where everyone has access to quality health care. 
but the other thing is, is as a senator, I would put direct pressure uh, and I would build a coalition around this issue to put direct pressure on our governor to make sure that we expand Medicaid. I remember when Governor uh, Rick's, well, Senator Rick Scott, who was the governor of Florida uh, this before he became the senator, he rejected the expansion of Medicaid. That would have helped a lot of people, especially people who live in uh, communities of color. That would have helped a lot of people. So that's what I'm looking to do. And I'm going to be actually writing those uh, uh, petitions up myself. Uh, and we're going to put those out and our campaign is going to get them out. Uh, across the state. And we're going to we're going to we're going to get the changes that we need. But we have to get the people on board first. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned uh, Governor DeSantis, who has been the source of a lot of frustration for a lot of us (laughs) down here. I mean, it just feels like he doesn't care. I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but it just it it's insane. But I bring him up because, you know, he introduced this bill, HB1, that is aimed at restricting like certain actions during protests. I think the underlying message of the bill is that, you know, someone could kind of use stand your ground against protesters if they appear to be doing something illegal. What kind of implications do you feel that's going to have on the community? Um, I think it's going to have gross implications. I think that it's going to allow people of color to be targeted. Uh, And the other thing it it does is it deputizes uh, everyday citizens. Now, in the state of Florida, uh, we don't have uh, laws that allow citizens to do like citizens arrests and things of that nature. Maybe Georgia may have that, but Florida is not one of those states. Uh, one of the things that I used to do in, in, in life was I had a security guard company and we used to provide security to various businesses and different things. And even a security guard who has gone through training and has a license, even a security guard can only utilize arrest powers when there is a felony being uh, committed. So to try and deputize citizens uh, to make it where a person uh, can't utilize their First Amendment rights is absolutely insane. Um, it's asinine. And, and it just goes to, to show you that these are the types of actions of a governor that should have never been placed in office. HB1 is designed specifically uh, to target people of color. They are trying to go after the Black Lives Matter movement. They are trying to go after protesters who may be protesting legitimate uh, uh, concerns of, of uh, implicit bias, racism against African-Americans, black and brown people, uh, people who are legitimately uh, legally protesting should not be targeted in this way. This is Jim Crow style uh, type legislation. Uh, it, it follows suit with the what he did for the felons or the returning citizens. It's following suit with what he's doing with minimum wage with returning citizens by not allowing them to take part in the the uh, $15 minimum wage and taking away their voting rights. This guy should not be in office at all. And I can't wait until uh, 22 rolls around and he is voted out by a Democrat. You and me both. And you mentioned that you're a progressive, which I am as well. I think anybody listening to this podcast would know that. And so 
I just wonder how you feel about the fact that we know that the progressive wing is like an ever-growing part of the Democratic Party. Um, and it just seemed like, especially after 2020, when we won, it was like, yay, thanks, progressives. But then after a while, it kind of turned into, but by the way, like you were part of the reason we lost or, you know, this, that, and the third. And I just wonder, like, what changes do you think the Democratic Party needs to implement in order to appeal to their more progressive constituents, especially those moderate Democrats who don't really want to toe that line between being called radical as the Republicans would deem them? What can they do to kind of make progressives feel like they belong in the party? Well, there's a there's a few things that can be done. One is we have to vote out all of those individuals that are in the party that are holding progress up. I mean, if you've been in the party for 20, 30 years and you haven't done much to bring society along or make positive impact in the community in which you represent, I don't believe you should should be in office. Uh, I think that uh, we have had enough of career politicians. Uh, But here's the thing. Change is inevitable. Uh, The progressive movement and the reason it's a movement is because it's constantly growing and it's constantly moving forward. Progressive, the progressive movement is here to stay. It is uh, taking over uh, the young demographic of people. Uh, That is the future. So eventually the the progressives will dominate the Democratic Party. Uh, You can't get beyond it. So, again, it's like I said earlier, we have to uh, continue to try and work together. But at the end of the day, the progressives will take over. Uh, The progressives have the most and the best ideals on how uh, we can address the issues. And that's why it's uh, that's why it's taken off is because the progressive ideology is directly addressing the issues of the masses in this country. And it's undeniable Uh, And when you have a lot of moderates who are trying to hold it back, it is just as bad as the Republicans branding the Democrats or branding the progressives as radical. But there is nothing radical about having uh, access to free health care. There is nothing radical about having access to free college education. I mean, we are a developed nation. And if we follow suit with every other developed nation and there are 33 others, that are already doing these things, we should be leading. We are, I mean, we did create the United Nations. We should not be uh, the head of the United Nations and falling behind every other country that are already doing uh, the things that progressives want to do. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just people thinking outside of the box and trying to address the issues. Uh, But I do believe that as a party, we need to come together. We can't continue to be divided along these issues. And if it's inevitable, then go ahead and get on board. You know, just get on board. Uh, and, and it's going to be good for everyone. We can figure out how to pay for these things, but we have to at least agree that the progressive movement is about improving the quality of life for everyone. Once you get to that point, then it's just a matter of trying to figure out how you're going to do it. And uh, one of the things that I want to be able to do is to find these solutions on how we pay for these things so that we can eliminate the argument on the left 
and eliminate the argument on the right. And that's that is how you define uh, the, the Republicans and the Democrats. I know that politicians use a bunch of issues to try to divide people. But when when it get right down to it, the only thing that divides the parties is how the money is going to be spent and where the money and resources are going to come from to pay for these programs. If we can find these creative ways to pay for these programs, then we eliminate the arguments on both sides. I totally agree. And uh, this would be my last question because I know you have to get out of here, but I'm glad you brought up division because there appears to be just a lot of division amongst Democrats, Republicans within the Republican Party, left versus right, moderate, progressive, all of that. But I'm wondering, how do you unite with Republicans when it kind of feels like the issues with them are kind of not in line with actual morals and values and actually trying to help the people. It seems like the issue with them is trying to hold on to power. Like we see how the the links they will go to stay aligned with the former president, even when there appears to be no real policy value to doing that. It just seems like they're trying to stay within the realms of power because they're no, they know their power is waning. So how do you unite with Republicans when it doesn't seem like they're actually here for the job? Um, I can answer that question a couple of ways. One is I distinguish between everyday Republicans and Republicans in leadership. They have a different motive. They have a different thing that inspires them to do what they do and to support what they support. A Republican that uh, is an everyday Republican, like some of the Republicans that come into my business for a haircut or something like that, they support the Republican Party for various reasons. Uh, And sometimes those reasons are completely different than why leadership Republicans are in office. And I'll give you an example. If you remember what I said earlier about what separates the parties, it's about financial resources. How are the resources going to be divided up? And where are the resources going to come from? Okay, so if you think about a Republican talking about being tough on crime, usually that Republican leader is going to be tough on crime, probably because he owns stock or she owns stock in a private prison or they want to go to war. They want to be tough on foreign terrorists and go to war with them, probably because they own stock in defense contracting firms. Now, an everyday Republican, are they're Republicans for reasons that are not similar to that. So when you think about out of all the laws that exist, those laws exist around issues. So there's about 55,000 different issues, right? If you look at most Republicans, they argue around maybe two or three. They're going to argue around pro-life. They're going to argue around the Second Amendment, the gun issue. They're going to argue around like a border wall, those types of issues. But when you push all of that stuff to the side and look at all of the other issues, that's 55,000 more. We have more in common with one another than than not. And so the way that we do it is we win on the issues that we have commonality. I tell them all the time we could build a wall. But at the end of the day, the only man-made structure that you can see from the moon is the Great Wall of China. Took them 100 years to build it, 
And when it was complete, they found out it didn't work. Walls have never uh, been good for society throughout the, the history of the world. It has only served to divide us. It's like segregation. It's just no good. We have to find those common threads that unite us. And those common threads and, and policy are social security. So no matter what, whether you are a Democrat, independent or a Republican, if you have worked 30 and 40 years and it's time for you to retire, you want your social security. You don't want career politicians talking about dismantling social security so they can use the money for some other reason. You can unite on an issue like that. Right now, there are 61 million people in America that have a disability. In Florida, there's like 2.8 million people that have a disability. When people are disabled, they depend on those disability benefits. And the reality is, is that you can get into a car accident today and become disabled and have to depend on the same system as all of the other 61 million people who are on disability. And it doesn't matter if you are Democrat, Republican or independent. And so what our campaign tries to focus on is speaking to issues that affect everybody alike. And then finding those common threads that bind us together so that we can use it as a launching pad to move forward on those issues together. So it's very important that we do come together and we do find ways to work together. And as far as those um, seditious senators, some people you just can't work with. And in, in those situations, it's best to unite uh, 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 around people that can challenge them to get them out of office. Not every person in office deserves or need to be in office. We have to make sure that the people that are there are people that, what well, it doesn't matter what their philosophical ideology is. What matters is, do they have a heart? And do they care about the people? And are they willing to listen and learn and move forward? And what you find out is, is that in our uh, Congress, there are a lot of people who just don't need to be there. And so, you know, I understand that uh, one of the reasons why they do not do what we think they should do is because they're trying their best to solidify Trump's base. Remember, Trump brought 40 percent more Republicans into uh, the, the base. Well, I'll say it this way. He brought 40 percent more voters into the Republican base. And a lot of politicians rode his coattail in on that. So they know that without that base, they could easily lose their seats. So people like Marco Rubio, who have aspirations for running for president in 2024, you, if you notice his tone, it's starting to sound a whole lot like Trump. It's because he feels that if he can solidify that base, and a lot of other ones feel that they can uh, solidify that base or not lose that base, it will guarantee their uh, future in politics. But here's a, here's a harsh reality. Uh, my daughter, who is 10 years old, going on 32, <laughs> she'll be turning 18 uh, in just eight more years. And her age demographic of people are more homogenous than any demographic before her. And I'll tell you this, those are progressive young children who will, when they turn 18, they're going to dominate the political landscape because they have a, a, a much larger population than the baby boomers who have been dominating uh, the landscape for the last 60 years. So when we see uh, these 10-year-olds turn 18 and they're larger and the baby boom demographic is 
is leaving this this place. We're going to see the progressive ideology flourish in our politics. We're going to start to see more people that look and sound and think like you and me. And it's going to be a beautiful thing when America is truly uh, the melting pot uh, that people talk about. And so uh, that's my stance on the issues. I'm excited about the future. Uh, I'm excited about running for the United States Senate because it has also given me the opportunity to talk about some of these things, whereas some of our um, Republican leaders are not talking about them at all. And I get a chance to talk about this stuff every day and raise the awareness on some of these issues. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you came to join me today because I'm really excited about it, too. 2022 is away away, but it'll be here before we know it. So please come back on the show because I feel like there are many more things we can talk about, many things that I didn't even get a chance to discuss with you. But I know that um, we'll want to hear from you in the months to come, especially with uh, how 22 is shaping up to look. So thank you so much for joining me. Tell the people where they can find you. You can find me at alanellison.com. Find me on Twitter at Alan L. Ellison. Facebook at Alan Ellison for Florida or the group Alan Ellison for U.S. Senate. Uh, We're on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're everywhere. So please follow us. Engage with us. We want to know what's on your heart and your mind because I'm looking to be the champion for the issues that you care about the most and bring responsive leadership to the state of Florida. Thank you very much for on your show. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you gals and guys for listening to Did You Hear the News? I'll check y'all out next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>